0: With me today to discuss the climate crisis-related health costs is Dr. VJ LeMay, climate and health scientist at the National Resources Defense Council's Science Center. Dr. LeMay, welcome to the program. Thank you. Dr. LeMay's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, 2020 set another global warming record. This past year it tied 2016 as the hottest recorded year And strikingly warmer than 2019, for example, average temperatures in some parts of the Arctic last year were more than 6 degrees Celsius higher than the 1981 to 2010 baseline average. Per NOAA, 2020 set a U.S. record with 22 $1 billion plus climate disasters, the previous record was 16 in 2017, totaling in some $95 billion in damages. Or more than double the 41-year average of $45 billion. Seven of the events were linked to hurricanes and tropical storms. Concerning wildfires, California suffered over 10 million acres burned, or more than double the previous record set in 2018 at 4 million acres. Adverse health effects caused by climate crisis events are on balance well known. For example, in 2016, the U.S. government published The Impacts of Climate Change on Human Health in the U.S., and I recently cited Lanson's 2020 countdown on health report that concluded in part, quote, the world has already warmed by 1.2 degrees Celsius, resulting in profound, immediate, and worsening health effects, close quote. Nevertheless, the response by federal policymakers along with the healthcare industry remains far beyond inadequate. The best the recent Congress, recently concluded Congress could do was produce a 550-page climate crisis report, that drew no connection between the climate crisis and related effects imposed on Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, due likely in part to the fact that neither either MedPAC or MACPAC, independent congressional commissions given broad authority to address issues affecting these programs, has never addressed, much less mentioned, the climate crisis. With me again to discuss climate crisis-related health costs is the National Resource Defense Council's Dr. V. J. LeMay. So with that, uh, as background, uh, VJ, let me begin by asking if you can briefly describe the NRDC Science Center's work.
1: Sure. And thank you, David, for the invitation to, to speak with you and your listeners. I work at NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. We are a nonprofit organization working really to safeguard the earth, its people, plants, and animals, and the natural systems on which we all rely We combine the power of more than 3 million NRDC members across the country with the expertise of about 700 staffers. That's scientists like me, but also lawyers and policy advocates who are working together to protect clean air, clean water, and the natural systems on which we all depend. Um, So I work in the Science Center at NRDC, and science really is the foundation of our work to protect people and the environment. We work to understand environmental and human health problems, working in interdisciplinary spaces, and some of the work that we'll talk about today in terms of connecting the dots between climate change and health is really the focus of my work. And I just have to say, you know, in this period of unprecedented attacks on the scientific enterprise, it's more important than ever that we recognize the value that science brings to society in helping us to confront and respond to some of these really urgent threats.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that last point, uh, as we're well aware. Let let me go to, you recently published uh, an article uh, to your credit in Health Affairs uh, last month. Last month, the December issue was a theme issue on the climate crisis. I should say, uh, Health Affairs published since 1983 had never previously addressed, or excuse me, 1981, had never previously addressed this subject. Uh, So again, congratulations. Your article with your colleagues was titled Estimating the Costs of an Action and the Economic Benefits of Addressing the Health Harms of Climate Change. Um, But I want to ask you specifically about that because you wrote uh, in this essay, quote unquote, there is currently a knowledge gap that must be addressed for a more complete understanding of climate change related exposure response relationship. So can you explain to me what this knowledge gap is?
1: Sure. You know, in your setup remarks, you mentioned the huge toll that climate and weather disasters inflicted on the United States last year, about $95 billion by the federal government's fresh estimate. And while that's a staggering number, as a health scientist, I'm an epidemiologist, I look at that figure and I wonder what's not included. And the truth is that when our federal government is tracking the damages of climate change in reports like the billion dollar disaster list, It's actually not accounting for tremendous, profound, and sometimes irreversible damage to human health. So there is a huge missing component when we think about the continuing and mounting costs of inaction on the climate crisis. Two years ago, in 2018, the federal government published its fourth National Climate Assessment. And it made some waves because it drew attention to about, you know, many billions of dollars in, in climate-related damages inflicted on people across this country. And finally, people at the federal, state, and local level are, are waking up to the tremendous financial implications and dangers of the climate crisis. But when it comes to human health, we really do not have adequate understanding of the cumulative impacts of this brewing problem on Damages to people's lives and livelihoods, but also severe costs in terms of the expense of shouldering hospitalizations, visits to the emergency room, and premature mortality that's inflicted by all sorts of problems that are worsened by climate change. You know, I talk about climate change and health a lot, but I think it's helpful to take a step back. People often, you know, think about the climate problem in terms of extreme heat, for example, which is certainly a problem. You know, last fall we saw. Temperatures in Los Angeles soar to 121 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. And certainly extreme heat is part of the problem. But when we talk about climate change and health, we're talking about a whole host of problems, health problems that are really severe. We're talking about air pollution from wildfire smoke and ground level ozone smog. We're talking about increased levels of allergenic pollen triggering asthma attacks for people in the southeast, for example. We're talking about stronger coastal storms. We're talking about increased uh, severe drought and severe precipitation, strong storm episodes. We're talking about infectious disease outbreaks like Lyme disease and West Nile virus. And so when it comes to the climate problem, we do really need a better accounting of just the impact on public health to begin with, but also what those impacts mean in terms of tremendous costs that are shouldered by individuals, families and institutions, including Medicare and Medicaid. So that was really the motivation of our health affairs piece, to take a step back, assess the state of the science, and try to plot a path forward in terms of articulating these missing costs and really filling in the picture so that policymakers and our elected leaders can shape a smart response that actually protects the most vulnerable people.
0: Thank you. I appreciate your going through that list. Uh, Very important to do that or to do so. Uh, the additional one, of course, is the effect on food production and nutritional value in food production, uh, which if you sure. look at look at the data on that, it's it's very frightening. Let's go to – also to your credit, uh, uh, just the year prior, 2019, and this is really – gets us into the specifics here. In 2019, you published in GeoHealth, again with colleagues, an article titled Estimating the Health-Related Costs of 10 climate Climate-Sensitive." U.S. events during 2012. And when I first saw this, I immediately thought of Hurricane Sandy, which, of course, thankfully is one of these. But right. this, this is really uh, the substance of this discussion. So let's, uh, and certainly feel free to uh, pick and choose which of these 10, but please describe for us how you calculated, um, and again, pick any example you'd like, uh, how did you calculate these health-related costs? And of course, what were those costs?
1: Sure. And I want to here acknowledge my undersea colleagues, Kim Knowlton, Juanita Constable, as well as health economist Wendy Max at the University of California, San Francisco. We spent the better part of two years collecting health data for a number of climate sensitive exposures that all hit the U.S. in a single year, 2012. And we really focused on a case study approach in terms of trying to assemble the existing health evidence on climate-related health impacts and connect that information to existing cost utilization data collected by the federal government um, to understand sort of uh, what was happening just in one year in terms of a sample of events. So in 2012, as you mentioned, Hurricane Sandy was obviously a monumental event, but there was also a slew of other climate-sensitive exposures across the country, including extreme heat in the Midwest. We looked at Wisconsin specifically, uh, extreme storms across the Midwest as well. We looked at Ohio. um, And we really looked at 10 different climate sensitive exposures, wildfires, infectious disease outbreaks, um, and air pollution to try to come up with some sense of just across those case studies, what were the cumulative health effects of those problems? One reason that we currently lack an adequate understanding of the overall picture is that we really right now lack a nationally coordinated health surveillance system when it comes to tracking the health effects of climate change. So, for example, we looked at the Hurricane Sandy situation out east and tried to understand What the health data told us across dozens of epidemiology studies, as well as data collected by state and local health departments, as well as what the federal government reported in terms of deaths attributable to that, um, you know, horrifying event out east. And so when we looked into the, the Hurricane Sandy data in terms of health outcomes, we arrived at some kind of surprising health effects that hadn't really been elevated in terms of the public understanding of, of that event. So we're talking about, you know, premature mortality and flooding-related injuries from the storm, but we're also talking about things like mental health problems, you know, um, people coping with um, the severe after effects of surviving a disaster. Um, people suffering from pregnancy complications or complications to their dialysis care, um, all sorts of problems afflicted, inflicted by that storm event. So when we looked at the overall total of what we could gather just out in the publicly available sort of data universe for Hurricane Sandy, we arrived at some pretty stark estimates. Um, we're talking about 273 deaths across the East Coast, but also more than 6,000 hospital admissions and about 5,000 trips to the emergency room triggered by that storm. And we acknowledge that those are still likely pretty conservative estimates just given where the data is at. So when we connect that health incidence information, basically understanding what the impacts of that storm were on illnesses, injuries, and deaths. We looked to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality um, to understand what certain types of health problems cost in terms of delivering medical care, um, in terms of the cost shouldered by patients who are staying in a hospital overnight and potentially losing wages at their job, um, people paying for medications and outpatient care, really trying to add up what was the total burden, financial burden. Of hurricane sandy um and so when we when we did the math there we ended up with about a 3.1 billion dollar price tag when it came to the health costs and that represented just under a third of the total 10 billion dollar price tag that we estimated across the case study events that year so you know this is really just sort of beginning to scratch the surface in terms of trying to lay out a method for connecting health data to healthcare cost data, and to try to understand, you know, what we kind of call the overall fabric of what's happening across the country. Because we really right now lack uh, a national system that, you know, maybe CDC someday could manage to help us track climate sensitive health effects. So we're really just scratching the surface here. But what we found so far is pretty worrying in terms of the cumulative burden. Um, One point I want to make in terms of just studying this problem is that a lot of attention is played to um, premature deaths associated with a storm event, for example. It's a lot harder to track um, morbidity impacts, illnesses, uh, mental health problems that are triggered by these events, and that's really an understudied area when it comes to climate change and health. When we looked at those illness costs and who was expected to pay them, we found that Medicare and Medicaid patients, so our most vulnerable neighbors, shouldered a hugely disproportionate burden of those costs. And that, unfortunately, really aligns with our scientific understanding in terms of the groups most vulnerable to the health consequences of the climate crisis. So to us, this you know, study in 2019 really elevated the importance of highlighting the ongoing and mounting costs and harm inflicted to the American public by the climate crisis. And unfortunately, those costs will only grow if our leaders fail to step up to this challenge.
0: Right, thank you. Uh, so let me just ask a few FOB questions on this. Of the ten billion dollars uh, amount that you totaled, uh, what percent was attributable to um, uh, being reimbursed or paid or borne by Medicare and Medicaid? Yeah,
1: um, I'm just pulling up pulling up the table here. One second, David. Sorry. So Medicare and Medicaid. We ended up so you know. When, when we think about that $10 billion price tag, we ended up with about $8.4 billion associated with the more than 900 deaths caused by climate-sensitive outcomes. And here we employed the federal uh, metric, the value of a statistical life, um, to you know, attach that $8.4 billion price tag um, to, to those premature deaths. So that leaves us with about 1.6 billion dollars attributable to illness costs, and we found that Medicare shouldered about 780 million dollars of those costs, and Medicaid um, was looks like about 240 million dollars. Right. Um, just ta- from those 10 events.
0: Right. This is table five in your right. in your report. Uh, it's important to note because obviously I I noted intentionally in my intro that. The Kathy Castor House Committee uh, did not discuss to any extent in their 550 page report uh, connecting the, or connect the dots between Medicare and Medicaid, nor has um, uh, the two commissions uh, ever addressed this, which is increasingly, uh, to say uh, at least, odd. I did appreciate your comment about uh, behavioral health issues. You do note in your conclusion that you only attempted to quantify mental health impacts for Hurricane Sandy. Uh, and again, probably the most difficult of all uh, to try to get at. Uh, and then just for clarity purposes, this this dollar amount um, is really just the more immediate impact of these climate disasters on individuals and, and health care. And the reason I asked this is because I did uh, interview the law firm that has managed the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund several years ago. And most mm. Americans know 2,977 lives were lost. However, subsequently, you can easily double that number uh, from uh, persons, particularly those who worked on the pile uh, at the World Trade Center uh, because of uh, air quality issues have subsequently died. So these numbers, these 900 plus or nearly 1,000 deaths, they're more immediate. We have no idea, correct me if I'm wrong, of the long-term effects, correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah, we really only have a snapshot of the effects of these different case study events. The duration of them varies, but we certainly know that the health problems linger far beyond sort of the health surveillance data that we had in hand. Um, So when it comes to our $10 billion price tag estimate, that's certainly a conservative one and only really represents kind of a fraction of the costs, even inflicted by the harms that we were able to identify through our searching of publicly available health data.
0: Right, and in your opening comment, you mentioned air quality. And in this study, you did note uh, wildfire impacts were characterized only for PM2.5 exposure. And of course, we do know long-term exposure, repeated exposure uh, uh, to wildfire smoke is is very damaging, uh, problematic. So there are going to be uh, costs in, increasing over time. Let's go to... Um, more uh, on the policy front. And in your back to your health affairs uh, article, you do note the limitations to date. You cite several of these, and you've already made this point. We don't prioritize or haven't fully fleshed out or established uh, national data collection to actually collect this information. So you do note CDC's uh, uh, brace framework, and you say does not explicitly account for the economic implications of climate-sensitive health outcomes. Uh, you do mention or have noted some uh, AHRQ uh, data sets, but correct me, there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this front.
1: Definitely. You know, we really believe that the climate crisis needs to not be siloed as sort of one issue. You know, we need to think about the climate problem in terms of human health. We know right now that more than half of American adults report medical financial hardship already. And when you line up that you know, information with our scientific understanding that for years and years to come, these climate-related health problems are only going to get more severe, more widespread, more deadly across this country, we really need a national plan. And I think President-elect Biden has one in terms of trying to connect the dots across the purview of all federal agencies. You know, I'm a former EPA scientist, and EPA should be working hand-in-hand With CDC and AHRQ to connect the dots, make this information more apparent to the public and to policymakers. It shouldn't, you know, um, be sort of cornered into uh, an area of economic valuation research, but really helps to inform what we're doing nationally. I think the flip side of the scientific work that we've done demonstrating huge costs in terms of climate change really also makes the point that investments in a smart response to the climate crisis that center protections for human health can save us a ton of money and are cost beneficial efforts to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and prepare communities for the climate related health harms that we know are on the way can ultimately save families a lot of money and government insurance systems that are currently, you know, heavily burdened by, this kind of um, climate related problem um, in terms of the huge burden of, of health effects that are attributable to the increasing concentration of, of climate pollution in the atmosphere. So we came up with a number of specific you know, recommendations through the health affairs work. Um, one is just to prioritize budgets uh, federally. We've seen, I think in the last 10 months across this country in recognition that decades of underinvestment in public health um, are not without consequence for, unfortunately, huge um, health problems, but also a, a struggling economy that is, you know, far from turning the corner uh, in terms of recovery this year. And certainly the climate problem is like a slow motion disaster, one that gets incrementally worse day after day and are continuing underinvestment, especially at the state and local level in climate response programs and state and local health departments will have consequences. You know, they're already strapped by the pandemic. And certainly last year we saw health agencies really struggling to cope with responses to wildfires, a historic coastal storm season in the American South. Uh, These problems really demand an appropriate level of smart investment at the federal level. Um, We also really do need to better understand, I, I hate to say more research is needed, but because we really haven't studied these costs Comprehensively across the country. You know, until recently, we really didn't have a great sense of how important this problem was to Medicare and Medicaid specifically. Um, our team really thinks that, you know, this information hopefully will help our elected leaders include health problems in the social cost of carbon in a more effective way. Right now, we're really not accounting for human damage when we think about federal policies designed to, you know, eventually move our way of life away from fossil fuels. So there's all sorts of things to be be done, but really um, we see centering human health in the climate response as a way to make the case to policymakers and, and an increasingly uh, aware public that this, this problem is real and dangerous and getting worse.
0: Yes, worse rapidly. Uh, speaking of, I'll just make, and this is an obvious point I found, but I'm glad you made it, and this again in your Health Affairs December piece, you note that, uh, national dialogues about reform of the US health system and the country's response to the climate crisis have continued on parallel and separate tracks that we that we divorced human health from the environment is just beyond my understanding but actually obviously we've had you work in this field
1: sure.
0: how do, how do you understand that i mean it's not understandable but maybe more accurately how is that possibly explained
1: You know, I think there's a pattern here I've I've observed in terms of when we talk about climate policy in our national dialogue, there is, um, you know, even in the presidential debates last fall, we saw really a a desire to focus on what we might have to give up um, or what the costs are of changing our way of life. And it is a big change that we need to make. But the flip side is that the costs of doing nothing are far, far greater. And unfortunately, due to a number of factors, it's really been hard to effectively, you know, point to concrete evidence in terms of what the actual expense of not acting, of doing nothing, of denying, of delaying, um, what that expense is for for society. Um, I think, unfortunately, COVID nineteen has driven the point home for some of us that, you know, are denial, uh, denialist leaders, people, you know, at the federal and state and local level who deny the basic, you know, uh, science that they otherwise rely on in many other parts of their life mm-hmm. um, when it comes to the pandemic. I think that's, you know, sort of a parallel in, in terms of the, the climate situation. So I do think um, we haven't been helped by the National Research um uh, Funders, we have seen that human health is a tiny fraction of all the climate research happening globally. Lancet estimated it at about one percent of all climate research in 2019, 2017. Excuse me, was focused on human health. So there has really been an effort, you know, in in many ways to deny the existence of climate change and not even go down the path of what it means for human health. Um, but I think increasingly, and unfortunately. The dangers of this problem are becoming undeniable, you know, even to folks who have long questioned the established science of of climate change. So I'm hopeful that this new year and a new administration will bring a renewed focus and centering of human health when it comes to our national response.
0: Right, correct. So we've obviously turned a blind eye and uh, it's becoming increasingly impossible uh, to to do that uh, relative to what we're observing. And, and just on the cost, I will say, you know, the argument that we're giving up something and not gaining is, is quickly refuted when there are massive numbers now of studies about uh, the effect uh, globally GDP will take a negative right. effect um, before the end of this uh, uh, century. And then, of course, we, know, we do know kilowatt hour pricing, uh, uh, renewables versus uh, fossil uh, fuels are such that from just a, a market or investment perspective – it's altogether sensible to move towards more uh, reduced footprint and go green. Um, I, I, since we have a, a minute, I do want to ask, and we didn't—I uh, didn't forward this question or note this in advance—but I'm sure you're well aware the Juliana case is mm-hmm. is, is out there. I, I know your organization has been involved. Uh, do you have any? Did you participate at all in, in contributing to uh, that issue and? I'll ask you where, where's the NRDC on this and where do you think this goes? You, you do know the ninth circuit a year or so uh, a year ago, rather uh, ruled in favor of, of the federal government. Of course, uh, the plaintiffs are appealing, but I am interested in where NRDC is on this.
1: Yeah. You know um, I, I wasn't involved in, in, in the case, but I I have been tracking it. Um, Unfortunately, I, I, I just the, the science person said I have to consult with our, our legal team on what the, the latest thinking is on that. But I will say that in the same health affairs uh, special issue, I, I led another paper about the impact of climate change on children and children's health and mm-hmm. the need to better articulate that problem in our educational systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the youth movement really gets it when it comes to talking about this problem, not in terms of some you know esoteric energy Technology challenge, but in terms of a threat to their very way of life, when it comes to um, what the science tells us. So, unfortunately, that's probably an unsatisfying answer. I can probably follow up, but that's where, no, that's where. I can speak to at this moment.
0: That's fine. And per your per your answer, of course, we do know that uh, that their carbon budget compared to ours is is going to be substantially compromised or have to be substantially less. Sure. Let me let me conclude by asking, where are you going? Now, with your research effort, and of course, my parochial interest is in as it relates to these federal social insurance programs, because, of course, uh, we well know the Medicare program, um, in part, because the number of of workers paying into the program per beneficiaries that ratio's this this uh, decades being reduced from three to one to two point five to one, uh, and for other reasons as well. Um, The Medicare Hospital Trust Fund is projected to go bankrupt as soon as January of 24. And we're seeing obviously these additional costs imposed or utilization imposed on these programs uh, from the climate crisis. Uh, But just again, generally, your research going forward.
1: Yeah, you know, I think we are increasingly interested in trying to connect the dots on a wider scale, talk about what the the national impacts are of this problem more comprehensively and look further into the future in terms of what could be coming our way. Um, We're also interested in making the case that the federal government needs to be better planning for climate impacts and keep the lights on at the VA, for example, keep uh, our health systems running through some pretty challenging um, things that are headed our way when we come to um, climate-related events. You know, Hurricane Sandy was a vivid example of the challenges of just keeping the lights on, right, during these mm-hmm. events. Um, so, you know, there there are ideas out there that we are trying to, um, you know, put some meat on, you know, things like grants from Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services that could, you know, condition federal funding on climate adaptation or mitigation requirements. Um, an early step is for the agencies federally themselves to all have climate adaptation plans um, to make sure that they can keep delivering services, not just throw money out into the void without an ad- adequate you know, follow-up plan for utilizing those resources. So um, we're encouraged by the early signals from the incoming administration, and we're gonna do everything we can to prioritize health when it comes to protecting the American public from this this really extraordinary problem.
0: Right. Existential threat, as it's oftentimes said. So relative yep. to your adaptation, you hear uh, much discussed in the healthcare industry community about mitigation and resilience. Uh, right. And there has been discussion, has been in the at the federal level on those, but really nothing proactively, uh, unfortunately, although we'll see uh, beginning next Wednesday. So with that, um, I appreciate um, uh, this overview, uh, Vijay, of, of your work. Uh, congratulations again uh, on the December publication. Um, and maybe down the road, we can have a, uh, after this current administration, uh, or the, rather the, the incoming administration, uh, makes some headway, we can revisit this and see what progress we're making. And hopefully it's substantive. So thank you again, VJ.
1: Thank you, David. Appreciate it.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David and Tricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.